Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In early 1969, 27-year-old Muammar Gaddafi and a few of his friends were driving to Benghazi through the Libyan desert. Out of nowhere, their car rolled over a sharp object that popped a tire and sent the vehicle skidding to the side of the road. Some locals heard the accident and rushed over to help. But instead of being grateful, Gaddafi's heart raced in fear. Inside the car, Gaddafi and his friends were carrying an incriminating leaflet that outlined their plans to overthrow the government. Gaddafi scrambled for something, anything to hide the paper. Finally, he spotted an empty alcohol bottle in the car and shoved the leaflet inside. When the locals finally arrived at the scene, they saw the paper-stuffed bottle and assumed Gaddafi and his friends were just having a fun night out. The ruse worked, and the plans for a coup d'etat remained secret for now. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today we begin our look at Muammar Gaddafi, the dictator who turned the nation of Libya into his personal piggy bank and challenged Western leaders for decades. Gaddafi was so despised by U.S. President Ronald Reagan that he called the Libyan leader the Mad Dog of the Middle East. Reagan was right about Gaddafi's reputation. He was considered one of the most ruthless, corrupt, and violent dictators in modern history. This week, we'll explore how centuries of foreign occupation influenced modern-day Libya. Then we'll follow Gaddafi as he transformed from an obscure desert revolutionary to a brash, confident leader. Next week, we'll examine how Gaddafi's disdain for Libyan citizens turned him into a tyrant whose antagonistic behavior made him a global villain. We'll head to North Africa right after this. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On December 24th, 1951, Libya was born. Independent Libya, that is. 
In front of a massive audience in the city of Benghazi, local politician Idris al-Sanusi proudly decreed the creation of the United Kingdom of Libya. A feeling of hope coursed through the crowd. One witness said, As the tears fell from my eyes, I felt that the Libyan people had got their spirit back. Yet, despite the celebration and excitement, many Libyans also felt a degree of ambivalence. After all, their independence was achieved differently than in many other countries. In Libya, there were no major revolutionaries like George Washington or Simon Bolivar. Instead, independence was thrust upon the people by Western interlopers. At the outset of World War II, Libya was an Italian colony. But after several battles over the region, British and French forces seized Libya from the Italian fascists. However, after the war, the victorious allies didn't know what to do with the territory. They definitely didn't want to give it up, thanks to its strategic location on the Mediterranean Sea. But for that same reason, the Soviet Union, now a major global power, also looked at Libya as a possible foothold in the region. It seemed a new conflict was brewing. But after much debate, the Allied powers agreed to solicit opinions from actual Libyan citizens and discovered that they wanted independence. So in 1949, the United Nations decreed that Libya should become free and self-governing within three years. And to make sure the Soviets had no influence over the independent Libya, the UN helped create a Western-style National Assembly. The National Assembly turned Libya into a constitutional monarchy and named Idris al-Sanusi the new king. At the time, Idris was one of the most prominent politicians in Libya. He also belonged to the Sanusi Order, a Sunni Sufist religious brotherhood that maintained significant influence in the region. But to some Libyans, the rise of King Idris and the country's newfound independence felt like history repeating itself. Libya encompasses three regions, each with its own identity, characteristics, and indigenous people. The northwest region is Tripolitania, whose major city is Tripoli. In the east lies Cyrenaica with Benghazi. And finally, there's the harsh desert region known as Fezzan. In each region, many indigenous tribes are nomadic and led by tribal chieftains. For thousands of years, these groups lived under the thumb of different empires. The Greeks, Romans, Arabs, and Ottoman Turks all conquered one or more of the regions. Of these, the 7th century Arabs arguably had the most influence over the indigenous people, mostly because they introduced Islam to the area. At the turn of the 20th century, the Italians decided they wanted the territory for themselves. So in 1911, the military launched an invasion. Within a year, they seized Tripolitania and Cyrenaica from the Ottomans. Italian rule was tenuous at first. Libyan resistance fighters immediately took up arms against their new colonizers, and the Italians were woefully unprepared. Then, when Italy entered World War I, Italian forces were stretched thin in Europe. The conflict in Libya soon became a stalemate. 
But when Benito Mussolini came to power in the early 1920s, he was determined to break indigenous resistance permanently. In Cyrenaica, where opposition was fiercest, Mussolini's forces used ruthless tactics to defeat the guerrilla fighters. The Italians built concentration camps and executed anyone suspected of being a rebel. Sources indicate that the Italians executed around 12,000 Cyrenaicans a year in 1930 and 1931. Ultimately, among a population of about one million native Libyans, nearly a third were murdered at the hands of Italian fascists. In the early 1930s, Italian forces finally ended the Libyan resistance. Once the fighting ceased, Italian settlers flocked to the country. They seized control of society and industry and turned Libyans into second-class citizens. But Italy's claim over the country lasted only until World War II. At this same time, during the fall of Mussolini's dictatorship, Libya's future dictator was born. Much of what we know about Muammar Gaddafi's early life is either shrouded in mystery or was crafted after he came to power. Therefore, qualities ascribed to the brother leader, as he would become known, should be taken with a grain of salt. What we do know is that Gaddafi was born near the coastal town of Sirte in Tripolitania, most likely in 1942. He and his family were Bedouins, nomadic Arabs who often made their home in the harsh deserts. Gaddafi's father, Abu Minar, was a goat and camel herder, and young Muammar spent his childhood helping his father tend to the animals. But even from a young age, Gaddafi also had a thirst for learning. Even though both of his parents were illiterate, they encouraged Muammar's ambition. Since Abu Minar was a devout Sunni Muslim, he decided that his son's education should begin with Islamic studies. When Gaddafi was a boy, Abu Minar used what little money the family had to hire a teacher for his son. Gaddafi devoured the Quran and memorized entire passages. For the rest of his life, he remained a devout Muslim. While studying the Quran, Gaddafi also learned about Libya's history. He was captivated by the freedom fighters who opposed foreign occupation, especially the Sanusi order's struggle against the Ottomans and Italians in the 19th and 20th centuries. More importantly, Gaddafi learned about his own family's struggles against the Italian colonizers. His grandfather was murdered by an Italian, while his father was imprisoned in a POW camp. Such stories instilled a sense of tribal and national pride in the young Gaddafi. Around the time he was nine years old, that pride swelled further as Libya became an independent kingdom. Unfortunately, the new kingdom was a mess. In 1951, Libya was one of the poorest countries in the world. Its illiteracy rate was a staggering 90%. Worse, because Italians excluded Libyans from the colonial administration, most citizens had no idea how to run a government. Still, there was much to be excited about. For the first time, the nation would no longer be dictated by the whims of imperialism, and Libyans could decide their own fate. For Abu Minar, that meant furthering his son's education. 
1954, Gaddafi began attending a local school in Sirte. But his quest to learn was often hampered by bullying. Gaddafi was teased for his Bedouin background and his family's poverty, which was so severe that Gaddafi often relied on strangers for food and spent many nights sleeping at the community mosque. But through it all, Gaddafi never lost focus. As an adult, he said, my motivation to learn was huge, especially when the pupils confronted me with their comments deriding this desert dweller. A few years later, Gaddafi's family moved from the coastal town of Sirt to the arid and desolate town of Sebha. It's unclear exactly why the Gaddafis made such a significant move. However, the relocation didn't stop the teenage Gaddafi from enrolling in high school once they arrived. And as he continued his studies, he discovered a new passion, politics. In a few short years, Gaddafi would transform himself into a radical revolutionary. As Arab nationalism swept across North Africa and the Middle East, he realized that Libya's future independence depended on one thing. He needed to overthrow the king. Coming up, Gaddafi spends a decade plotting his coup. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem. This podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. For many Libyans, the dawn of the 1950s was an exciting period. For the first time in the country's history, all three regions were united and led by someone who wasn't a foreigner. Although Libya was among the poorest countries in the world, its newfound autonomy gave it hope for the future. Among the hopeful masses was the teenage Muammar Gaddafi. But he wasn't rooting for the success of King Idris. Instead, he hoped for the king's downfall and the rise of Libyan nationalism. In the late 1950s, Gaddafi's newfound ideology was inspired by Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, a charismatic politician who overthrew the Egyptian monarchy in 1952. Within two years, Egypt became an Arab republic, with Nasser as its leader. Nasser strongly advocated for pan-Arab nationalism across North Africa and the Middle East. Using a Cairo-based radio station called Voice of the Arabs, he called for Arab unity and a rejection of Western imperialism. Nasser claimed that fighting Western imperialism also meant opposing Zionism and Israel. As a devout Muslim, he sympathized with the Palestinians 
and argued that the Israeli government had stolen their land. He claimed that Israel's formation had less to do with creating a homeland for Jewish people and instead served to anchor Western influence in the Middle East. Nasser's agitation against foreign powers culminated in the Suez Canal crisis of 1956. After Nasser nationalized the foreign-operated waterway, British, French, and Israeli troops attacked Egypt in an attempt to reclaim it for the West. But when the Soviet Union threatened to intervene on Egypt's behalf, the Western forces retreated. In the wake of the crisis, Nasser's leadership status was solidified as an anti-imperialist Arab nationalist. Gaddafi idolized the Egyptian leader, especially because Nasser could back up his rhetoric with action. His love of Nasser grew so pronounced that Gaddafi's friends used to tease him for it. One friend even suggested he should become an Egyptian himself. But Gaddafi was and always had been a proud Libyan. He believed Nasser's anti-imperialist system could be a boon for his home country, especially as it became increasingly obvious that Libya's King Idris was nothing more than a Western puppet, thanks to the country's oil reserves. Decades earlier, the Italians were the first to realize Libya's potential as an oil producer. After an Italian geologist discovered traces of oil in the water, Mussolini's government sent prospectors to find a viable well. After the Allies took control from Italy, they brought in foreign energy companies to continue what the Italians started. Finally, in 1959, a major oil field was discovered by the company that would eventually become Exxon. Oil changed everything for Libya. In a few short years, it became a major exporter of this black gold. For the first time, massive wealth poured into the country. Unfortunately, the Libyan people didn't see much of it. While the economy did expand, the vast majority of Libya's new riches went to King Idris's coffers or were hoarded by the tribal elite. Idris's blatant corruption led to even more resentment among the people. And instead of quelling the masses, he doubled down on his illicit income and Western connections. Throughout the 1950s, Idris allowed British and American forces to build military bases on Libyan soil. Prior to the discovery of oil, this was done in exchange for foreign aid. But even after new wealth came to the country, Idris allowed the foreign forces to stay. Beyond the military presence, many of the oil companies exploiting Libya's resources were American. And although the Libyan government saw a cut of the profits, the oil itself was under foreign control. Between Idris's corrupt reign, a new generation of Western influence, and a disenfranchised population, Libya was a powder keg ready to explode. And Muammar Gaddafi wanted to be the one to light the fuse. By his late teens, Gaddafi was known for his charisma and captivating presence. Drawing on inspiration from his dissident ancestors and Nasser's speeches, Gaddafi preached his own nationalist beliefs and gained a devout following. Throughout the early 1960s, he organized anti-monarch and anti-colonialist demonstrations. Unfortunately, this political activity got him expelled from school in 1961, 
though this setback did nothing to deter the young nationalist. By 1963, 21-year-old Gaddafi convinced himself that the only way to overthrow King Idris was through a military coup. So he joined the military academy in Benghazi and urged his followers to do the same. Military life was an eye-opening experience for Gaddafi, and in the barracks, his resentment toward the elite only grew. Most of his fellow cadets were rich kids who drank, gambled, and personified everything Gaddafi despised. So he socialized with the cadets who came from a similar background as he did. They were poor, indigenous, and devoutly Muslim. Alongside these men, Gaddafi co-founded the Free Unionist Officers Movement. Across Libya, Gaddafi organized clandestine groups that waited for him to give them the signal to overthrow King Idris. But Gaddafi's stint in the military did more than provide a staging ground for a potential coup. It also revealed his apparent penchant for killing. At some point during his training, Gaddafi allegedly orchestrated the killing of a fellow cadet. As the story goes, Gaddafi discovered that the cadet had engaged in some form of prohibited sexual activity. In response, Gaddafi and his followers were said to have hogtied the man and repeatedly shot him. It remains uncertain whether this was the first time he allegedly engaged in violence. It's quite possible that he was always violent, or perhaps such homicidal urges were inspired by his revolutionary transformation. His rumored cruelty didn't hinder his ability to recruit men, especially as his resentment against the monarchy grew more pronounced in the mid-1960s. As pan-Arab nationalism swept through the Middle East, Gaddafi quietly continued rallying soldiers and low-ranking officers to his cause. As a way to placate the nationalists within Libya, the government refused to renew the leases on the British military bases. In August 1966, nearly all of these bases were evacuated, though the U.S. continued to operate an airbase in Tripoli. For many hardline Libyans, this was too little too late. To them, Idris was still a Western stooge, and they were waiting for the moment to spark a revolution. That spark came in the summer of 1967. After years of rising tensions, Israel launched a surprise attack against Egypt on June 5th. Within hours, Egyptian forces were decimated, and in response, Jordan struck Israel. However, the Jordanians were no match for the Israeli soldiers. A few days later, Syria also attacked Israel, only to be met with a similar fate. The conflict became known as the Six-Day War, and by the time violence ended, Israel had seized the Golan Heights from Syria, the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Gaza Strip and Sinai Peninsula from Egypt. Across the Arab world, the Six-Day War was considered a humiliating defeat. Israel had taken on three countries at once and triumphed. In Libya, nationalists were outraged, not just at Israel, but at King Idris. While the Libyan government vocally supported the other Arab nations, Idris offered no military assistance whatsoever. A new series of protests erupted across the country. 
Many Libyans believed that the U.S. helped plan the Israeli aggression, so angry protesters violently attacked American administration buildings. Meanwhile, oil workers halted production in an effort to hurt American business interests. But to Gaddafi, an oil embargo and protests weren't enough. By the start of 1969, 27-year-old Gaddafi had around 7,000 men organized across his various secret cells. He and the other revolutionary leaders agreed that March 12th was the day to launch their coup. They were confident that they could easily take control of the Libyan military bases, but overthrowing the king proved trickier than they imagined. As it turned out, March 12th was the night of a benefit concert for Palestinians. Fearing that a military coup would be terrible PR, Gaddafi and his revolutionaries decided to push back the uprising for two weeks. But during that time, King Idris and the military brass discovered that something nefarious was afoot. Exactly how much they knew is a mystery, but it was enough to send Idris into hiding and increase his personal security. Fearing reprisals if their identities were discovered, Gaddafi and his co-conspirators went underground. Throughout 1969, military leadership became increasingly suspicious of Gaddafi, even as he tried to keep a low profile. He was repeatedly apprehended and interrogated, though nothing ever came of these arrests. In truth, no one believed Gaddafi was capable of a coup. One high-ranking army official said, We always thought it was rubbish that Gaddafi and his group would never be able to do anything. Despite the setbacks, Gaddafi was still determined to end Idris's reign. But some of his fellow revolutionaries were having second thoughts. Between Gaddafi's frequent arrests and the constant delays, many wondered if the coup would happen at all. Realizing he might lose his chance, Gaddafi planned the coup for early September, when King Idris would be on vacation in Turkey. This time, his instincts were spot on. In the early hours of September 1st, 1969, Gaddafi's revolutionaries descended on radio stations and military bases throughout Tripoli and Benghazi. They met virtually no resistance. King Idris's elite security force and military officials surrendered upon seeing the size and scope of Gaddafi's forces. Within a few short hours, Gaddafi and his men had seized the country. It may have been one of the easiest coups in history, and it was virtually bloodless. Only one of King Idris's soldiers died. By 6.30 a.m., Gaddafi announced the revolution over the radio, saying, People of Libya, your armed forces have undertaken the overthrow of the reactionary and corrupt regime. From this day forward, Libya is a free, self-governing republic. Prosperity and equality will be seen to rule us all. With Gaddafi and his conspirators now in control, he intended to transform the country into a nation that resembled Nasser's Egypt. Unfortunately, he had no actual plan to achieve that goal. Instead, Gaddafi improvised. And in doing so, he would throw Libya into even more chaos and turmoil. Coming up, 
Gaddafi struggles to integrate his coup into the Pan-Arab Revolution. Now back to the story. On September 1st, 1969, 27-year-old Muammar Gaddafi led a nearly bloodless military coup to topple King Idris of Libya. Gaddafi immediately promoted himself to the rank of colonel and proclaimed to the people of Libya that the country was now a republic. More importantly, he decreed that the nation was going to be truly independent and free of all foreign intervention. Reaction to Gaddafi's coup was a mix of confusion and excitement. Most Libyans seemed happy to be rid of King Idris and were relieved that the military stepped up and saved them from his endless corruption. Meanwhile, from his exile in Turkey, King Idris downplayed the entire coup. According to author Alison Pargeter, Idris probably believed the British military would help him repel Gaddafi and the revolutionaries. But 79-year-old Idris failed to realize that the West had no use for him anymore. At the time, the former imperial nations of Western Europe were decolonizing Africa. Thus, the British government had no intention of interfering in Libya. Meanwhile, the United States government tolerated Gaddafi's leadership because of their interest in Libya's oil. But they were wary of his relationship with the Soviets, who supplied him with weapons. Such concerns were probably unfounded, however, as Gaddafi despised communism and its support of atheism. With this tacit approval of his authority at home and abroad, Gaddafi and his revolutionaries began to transform Libya in their image. Gaddafi replaced the monarchy with the Revolutionary Command Council, or RCC. The RCC consisted of 12 men from Gaddafi's Free Unionist Officers Movement, with Gaddafi as chairman. But it didn't take long for Gaddafi and the RCC to realize they had no clue how to run a government or guide a national economy. Outside of their military training, most of the men had very little education. So Gaddafi sought help from his idol, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser. Nasser was stunned by Gaddafi's coup. He had no idea who Gaddafi was, and he was confused when Gaddafi proclaimed he had taken Libya in Nasser's honor. Still, the Egyptian president recognized that Gaddafi was a naive revolutionary and agreed to help. He sent advisors to guide the RCC on running a government and to make sure the revolution held firm. Of course, the first step in keeping a revolution alive is avoiding a counter-revolution. So the RCC swiftly arrested any and all dissidents. However, these weren't the bloody purges that are often characteristic of the chaos after a coup. During a series of televised show trials, Many of the accused monarchists were given light prison terms, not death sentences. It seemed the only person sentenced to death was King Idris, and even that was in absentia. At the same time, the RCC consolidated their power by stripping authority from tribal leaders. They either removed them from bureaucratic positions or established new administrative boundaries which diminished tribal power. Following Nasser's vision in Egypt, Gaddafi and the RCC implemented nationalistic and populist policies. 
which included ending any Western presence in the country. Within a year, they kicked out American troops stationed at the airbase near Tripoli. Meanwhile, the RCC also expelled any lingering Italian nationals, expropriated their land, and redistributed it to Libyan farmers. Oil was the only sector to remain under Western control. According to historian Dirk Vandewalla, only 1% of the native population worked in the oil industry. Most of the actual manpower was foreign workers. Gaddafi and the RCC understood that the Libyan people weren't ready to take over the industry that provided almost 99% of the nation's revenue. Such inexperience could be disastrous for Libya if the oil wells were mismanaged. Still, the message from Gaddafi and the RCC was clear. Their country was now for Libyans alone. But the RCC was only intended to be a temporary government body. The plan was for them to create a new government and prepare the people for civilian rule. The new regime was supposed to be progressive, modern, and completely Arab. But that vision quickly fell by the wayside. Within weeks of the coup, it was obvious to the RCC that Gaddafi had no interest in ceding power. At least, not until he believed the revolution was over. As such, Gaddafi attempted to wrest control from the other RCC members. He often undermined his fellow revolutionaries by enacting decrees without their input. He also publicly criticized them, burnishing his own reputation to the Libyan people. As the months went by, Gaddafi became increasingly petulant. He refused to talk with other members of the RCC. Or, if he didn't get his way on petty issues, he disappeared into the desert to pout. Gaddafi's antics annoyed and frustrated some members of the RCC. On multiple occasions, these disgruntled men plotted to oust Gaddafi. But each attempted coup ultimately ended in failure, and the majority of the 12-man RCC remained loyal to Gaddafi. They knew they wouldn't be in their positions of power if not for his leadership. So they went along with Gaddafi's absurd behavior. And that behavior only got worse after the death of his hero, Gamal Abdel Nasser. In September 1970, Nasser died unexpectedly of a heart attack. The face of Arab nationalism was gone. But while Gaddafi was heartbroken by Nasser's death, it also inspired him. Arab nationalism needed a new figurehead, and Gaddafi wasted no time appointing himself as Nasser's successor. Despite his borderline tyrannical behavior, Gaddafi still sought autonomy for the Libyan people. In 1971, he organized two separate attempts for popular rule. The first came in January, when he and the RCC encouraged the people to participate in local caucuses to elect representatives to send to the National Congress. Those elected officials would then choose a new president. However, public turnout was abysmal. So five months later, Gaddafi tried again, albeit a little differently. In June, he announced the formation of the Arab Socialist Union, or ASU, which served as the only official political party. 
The organization hoped to rally the people for winter elections all across Libya, but it also failed to garner support. There were several reasons Libyans refused to engage. For starters, the people weren't really unified. All across the country, men and women clung to their old tribal or provincial loyalties. Also, as author Alison Pargeter writes in her book, Libya, The Rise and Fall of Gaddafi, while most Libyans were happy that the old regime had been toppled, they were not ready to make a complete break with the past and to accept Gaddafi's newfangled ideas. With each passing year, Gaddafi grew increasingly frustrated with his people. It didn't make sense to him that they weren't engaging in their own government. On several occasions, he resigned and sulked off to the desert. But he usually came back to the RCC within a month. Eventually, Gaddafi realized that Libya needed a new system. If the people weren't going to lead themselves, then he needed to do it for them. On April 16, 1973, 31-year-old Gaddafi shocked the rest of the RCC when he announced the start of the popular revolution. Gaddafi subsequently presented the Libyan populace with a five-point outline for the country's future. The first two points mirrored each other. Gaddafi would rewrite current laws in revolutionary language and increase anti-revolutionary purges. The next step was removing bourgeois and bureaucratic elements from administrative departments. After that, Gaddafi also intended to create militias to maintain the new revolutionary order. The final point of his plan was a cultural revolution that would erase any semblance of Western influence, much like Mao Zedong had done in China. In the months that followed, Gaddafi created civilian committees around the country. These groups completely upended existing administrative bodies. They consisted of elected officials and were charged with running everything, including local governments, schools, and factories. By the end of summer 1973, there were around 2,400 such committees across Libya. Meanwhile, roughly 40,000 men and women joined the people's militia. Trained and armed by the state, Gaddafi created a loyal security force. Its true purpose was obvious, to prevent any potential military coups. The five-point outline for the popular revolution ultimately became the launch point for Gaddafi as a political theorist. As his committees and militias purged Marxists, capitalists, and other political factions, Gaddafi increasingly implemented what he called the Third Universal Theory. This theory was a mix of socialism and Islam. Gaddafi despised the inherent greed and imperialism associated with capitalism. He also opposed communism based on his religious principles. So the third universal theory was a middle ground. But it was also a rigid system of social and economic control. In the years after his 1969 coup, Gaddafi and the RCC implemented decrees based upon Islamic tradition, such as outlawing casinos and alcohol. But now, Gaddafi instituted social laws based around Sharia, or the teaching of the Quran. Punishments for breaking Sharia law became increasingly severe. 
Economically, implementing the third universal theory mostly resulted in state-run capitalism. Industries became nationalized, including the oil production that had long been foreign-run. Thanks to these shifts, more public sector jobs were created. But instead of paying Libyans a fixed salary, Gaddafi cut wages altogether. He believed wages led to exploitation and slavery. Instead, he demanded that workers and management become partners. Everyone was to split the profits equally while also having a say in day-to-day -day operations. As partners, Gaddafi believed people would avoid becoming greedy. Gaddafi's ultimate vision was a stateless paradise. He was so confident that the third universal theory would achieve this that in 1975, Gaddafi published his manifesto called The Green Book. Broken down into three sections, The Green Book was his roadmap to help other Arab countries create a utopia. It contained everything from denouncing democracy and personal wealth to the role women should play in society. International response to the Green Book and the Third Universal Theory ranged from confusion to outright derision. Some Arab leaders found Gaddafi's ideas simplified versions of Gamal Abdel Nasser's rhetoric. Others found them hilariously half-baked. But Gaddafi brushed off such criticism. He was convinced that his new ideology represented the future. He said, I am not exaggerating if I say that all philosophy books that have tried to solve the problem of democracy before 1976 are all now in the rubbish bin. Despite his critics, he once again reorganized Libya's political system. On March 2, 1977, he announced the end of the Libyan Arab Republic. From now on, the country would be called the Socialist People's Libyan Arab Jamahiriya. Jamahiriya means state of the masses, which made it sound like Gaddafi's attempt to portray Libya as a nation run by the people. But for the next 30 years, Gaddafi would continue to rule Libya with an iron fist. Violence and bloodshed would become the norm as he turned his ire toward anyone who threatened to harm his revolution. And as Gaddafi controlled the people at home, he would make it his mission to export his revolution abroad, even if it put him directly in the crosshairs of his imperialist enemy, the United States of America. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore Gaddafi's contentious relationship with the U.S., and how his regime came crashing down during the Arab Spring. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, edited by Tony Goodman and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Amelia Millars, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Aaron Larson. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>